Welcome, I'm Ruth Frenger, founder of Conscious Leaders. This podcast aims to change the world of work one honest conversation at a time. Now, I hope you enjoy these conversations. They're with proven people leaders running highly successful businesses. And if you're interested in developing your leadership skills further, I've digested the top traits and behaviors of the best people leaders I can find into a book. It was recently a finalist in the Business Book Awards, and it's called Next Level Leadership, Nine Lessons from Conscious Leaders. To order your copy, visit consciousleaders.org.uk forward slash book. And you can also subscribe to my bi-weekly newsletter, where I share free content, including practical tools to help leaders move from good to great. So today I've got CEO of AI company Satalia, Daniel Holm, back on the Conscious Leaders podcast. Really excited to have Daniel back with us. Now his original interview was episode three, and in that he shares his big philosophy. So it's a really good one if you're interested in big ethical ideas in business and with technology, but otherwise get ready for his next wave of insights. You're probably going to have to take listeners on a journey. Since your original podcast interview, you've been bought by WPP. Um, I remember you telling me you, you wouldn't you wouldn't sell out to a big company. So do you want to do you want to tell start by um, answering that leading question about? About. It's a tough first yeah. question, Ruth. Right. Thank you. <laughs> Let's go straight in. Yeah, yeah. So, so Satalia, if you remember, <clears throat> the aspiration was to be um, a, like a venture builder. What what I wanted to do and still want to do is build um, uh, an operating system for a company that allows for the best structure to emerge according to the innovation that you're taking to market. So, when companies usually start, they have a product or a service, and they they create an organizational structure that's optimized towards that one type of offering and you know over time you get pressure to diversify your revenues so you end up being a product company for your services company a service company for your product company but you're not then structured in a way that's that, that's optimal for both and so I, I sort of very early on realized that if we if we wanted to to be the best innovation company that we could be we, we and, and to offer products and services and everything in between to our clients we need to create an operating system that allows for the, the best structure to emerge according to that particular innovation and um, and so actually over the past five six seven years we have built innovations for companies like Tesco and PwC that we've then productized so we've gone from you know building solutions a services company to then product company and it was difficult because we were taking the profits that we were making from services and then investing that into product. And the reality is, is that whilst we were doing quite well, to really scale products, you, you, you need to have investment to put the right support and maintenance and all that kind of stuff around it. And so I decided it would make sense to go to market and try to get some investment into a couple of products that we developed and w when speaking to VCs the the problem is is that they if they saw us as a venture builder stroke consultancy company you would have one type of multiple two three four times if they took our assets 
the, the different products, they would have much bigger multiples because they were technologies. But of course, revenues were less associated with them. But the irony was, if you if you split Satalia up into its different parts, we would be valued more than if it was invested in um, at the at the top. And so it, it, we we weren't having the right conversations with VCs because they they didn't know whether we were a product company or a services company and. Um, and if they if they were focusing on a product, they would want us to to do that for the next seven years. And and I didn't want to be a delivery company or a workforce company over the next um, seven years. I wanted to continue being a venture builder. So we also looked at strategic investments. So from companies that we'd been working with, big tech tech firms, and it just so happened that we we were working and have been working with Wunderman Thompson, which is one of the opcos for WPP on a number of clients over the past several years. And we've built a great relationship with them. And I said that we were looking for, you know, getting investment in some of our products. And, and they said, why don't we just buy you? And at, at the time, I didn't really think about being, being bought. Although, you know, some of the other companies that were interested in, in us were also socializing that idea, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, those, those conversations were leaving me quite cold. But when I explored the opportunities to, to join WPP, there were just so many synergies that it just made complete sense. And, and the reality is, is that I have more freedom, more autonomy um, than I would have had if I'd have got VC funding. Um, and uh, and I have a, an incredible platform and organization to, to, to build off and, and, and actually accelerate the, all of the things I was wanting to, to do in Satalia. Mm, but it was going to be a lot slower without the, that investment. Exactly. Yeah, uh, it would have uh, it would have taken a lot longer, and uh, obviously COVID and a, you know, an, un, an increasingly uncertain economy um, made that path you know more challenging. Satalia, in some respects, w- was a marathon. I didn't quite know what the end was, and so I had to kind of pace myself and be careful. And actually, there's some times where you do have to sprint to be able to challenge and, and keep up with the market and uh, and what what being part of now WPP allows us to do is both you know develop some technologies uh, as, a, as a marathon but also to be able to split to, to, to have the investment and resources to sprint mm. so it sounds like uh, don't let me put words in your mouth but I don't know if you would have used the word gut on your original interview but you certainly said that your intuition would play a big part in decisions like that so something about the VCs were saying like no, this is not feeling good. And is there, I don't know if there's anything else to say to that about why this company. You were like, no, this fits. And this is it. Is it people? Is it is it just logic? Like, what what is coming together to make that? It was it was two things. I think really one was um, was valuation. Uh, I think you know the, the valuations were significantly lower than what I was seeing in the market for product companies. So we, when we had products, if we were seen as a product company, the valuations would be much higher. If we we're seen as a consultancy, the valuations would, would be lower. And so they couldn't quite get their head around us being both. Um, but also the the vision wasn't aligned right i didn't i didn't want to be a delivery company for the next seven years and i didn't want to just be a consultancy company um i wanted to be a venture builder and that wasn't a vision that aligned with vcs and um and and also you know the aspiration was that we 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 learn how to innovate that helps organizations remove friction to hopefully bring the cost of those goods down cheaply so they become more abundant and also we wanted to challenge how we operate as an organization so that we could decentralized work and and those two things again were, were hard for VCs to get their head around and and when I also kind of entertained the idea of joining some of the you know big tech 
consultancies out there, I think that we would have been probably, you know, buried in a in a in a in a in a corner somewhere um, as a, as an internal capability. Whereas with WPP, they they really celebrate us um, both internally and and, and externally. Hmm. And talking, I mean, decentralization has always been a big thing for you in terms of structure of people. Are you able to do more of that? And and how does that look? Because originally, when we were talking about this stuff, you were talking about um, no managers, very fluid people and teams, people dropping into leadership roles, coming out, sort of circle leaders, very kind of... Um, I'm trying to think of a good metaphor, but just something that really you may have one more than I do, but yeah. something that that really ebbs and flows. Sil- I mean, Silicon to- Valley call this liquid liquid organisations, right? And so yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think you know the trend that we're seeing, and probably that you've seen, is that companies want to move from role-based structures to skills-based structures, and then allocating those people to work based on skills rather than roles. And, and the assumption is is that you know roles are, are linked to a hierarchy. So, you know, there, there, there are hierarchies because there are some people that are better placed at making decisions than me. And so they should be best, they should be put in the position where they're making decisions. And so that, that the philosophy, the, hype, the goal is to how do you select the best group of people and, and including diverse group of people to swarm around a decision, whether it be hiring or firing or forecasting or strategy or software development and have them then solve that problem or make that decision and, and instead of the decision being made in a hierarchy. And um, and that, that principle still absolutely applies. Um, and, and it's something that also resonates with WPP. Of course, we've got to navigate an organization that has 120,000 people, that, um, uh, like any organization that has these these relatively fixed structures. But but the aspiration for companies like WPP um, is to move towards these liquid structures. And, and, and actually, we're, we're not only looking at doing this and, and have started to do this inside WPP, but we're also doing it for some of WPP's biggest clients. So we're using AI to understand skills, hopes, dreams, desires of, 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 of employees, and then and then tr- trying to use that to understand how best to allocate them to work that, that aligns with their values, but also means that they're going to thrive in their career and all that good stuff. So, so we were very lucky to kind of spot this trend, develop capability, and um, and and now I have a, a platform of 120,000 people to 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 work with WPP to roll this out across, and also you know almost every single brand in the world um, engaging uh, with with WPP in one way or the other way we might be able to help them decentralize or liquefy um, how they operate. Mm. Well, in your first interview, you talked quite a bit about human dignity as being like a kind of core principle where you'd landed in terms of your philosophy in life and and how we create and i guess this applies to yeah i I think ultimately you know we many people you know either born into poverty or born into economic constraints or you know are are in work and not necessarily enjoying the work that they do and and the, the the opportunity is to be able to use AI to automate stuff so it frees them to go and do more interesting things, um, but also gives them more flexibility to to allow them to, to work on things that align with their interests and, 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 and values and all, obviously also that align with the values of the organization. And, uh, and, and that's what these technologies um, can do. Hmm. And... and- there is quite a lot of fear out there at the moment. I mean, the amount of people I speak to now that are saying things like, mm, I'm wondering if 
two, three years' time, my job's going to exist anymore. Right? This is a, a big time of change. And how do we, from a people perspective, how do you hold that change as society? Because it, from my perspective, I just see new technologies coming out. It's going as fast as possible. This will cut this industry, cut this industry. And that's what the news is maybe feeding as well, fear and, like, you know. Yep. So the narrative is is pretty, I think from, you get very positive people like you, which will sell the, you know, which will talk about the positive future that we could exist in. But but it's not an easy easy time for people. It's a it's a really complex time. I mean, you know, there isn't there isn't a day, almost a pro, I guess an hour that goes by that the topic around the impact that these technologies have on jobs doesn't come up, and and, and I get asked. And um, you know, this is a topic that I've been thinking about for a very very long time. And you know, I'm good friends with people like Callum Chase, who are you know authors on this subject, and um, the. I think I think there's a couple of things. One is that there's there's a lot of con- there is the the zeitgeist is that change is going to happen significantly over the next several years, and I guess it, humans are scared of change, and so what, what I what I try to do is educate people to help them understand and, and, and navigate what it means, you know, what these technologies can and can't do. So it you know. It removes some of the ambiguity and mystery, but I, I actually think that over the next ten years we're going to see a, a Cambrian explosion of new opportunities. Yes, jobs will be depla- de- um, uh, displaced, but new jobs will be created. Um, uh, n- new opportunities will, will 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 rise, and and I think anybody that that claims they know what the world's going to look like beyond the next ten years, I think, really don't know what they're talking about. But what what I do know is that it's within our gift to create the future. I don't think anybody knows the future, but we can make decisions both personally, professionally within our organizations to make sure that that we're moving the world towards a, a, a better place. Now, that better place could be a world where everything's automated and we're living in a world of abundance and there isn't jobs. And uh, uh, Or it could be a place where we unlock more and more creativity so people can come up with new ideas that, that lead to work. I, I don't know what that future looks like, but, but I think it's within our gift to create that future. I personally want to use these technologies to free people up from mundane, repetitive tasks, to, to, to remove that friction, to bring the cost of goods down to very cheap so that if, if we end up in a situation, I'm not saying we will, where people are not able to work and get paid, that all of the stuff that they need to thrive and survive, the food, the healthcare, the education, the energy, it's, it's essentially free because we've managed to remove so much friction. Streamlined. So you, much you, you've, you've, okay. you've, you've created a, what is called a world of abundance. And I, and I, and I think that, that is a possible future world. And, 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 I, and I think that the kind of collective purpose of enterprise, you know, many of the organizations that we work with that have a strong purpose, I think that if we, if we took all of those purposes, that's the future that we're, we're creating, a world where people are free, economically free, to contribute positively to humanity. I know lots of people that don't have to work. I don't have to work in theory. I'm working harder now than I've ever worked. But those people are not sitting at home bored and depressed. They're using their time and energy to, to contribute positively to humanity. And, and when I ask audiences and people, what what would you do if you didn't have to work? 
people say they'll travel or they'll indulge in their hobbies or whatever. They'll spend more time with family. And if I keep pressing people, most people say, I want to do stuff that enriches the people's lives or makes the planet better or animals' lives better. I think we all have an innate desire to, to want to do that. And I personally believe that we can use these technologies to unlock more and more people from economic constraints to allow them to use creativity to make the world better. Well, let's pull this back to Satalia, your employees. Decentralization, we've heard about this kind of maybe it's, I'm hearing like a, almost like a mirror brain. Um, I want to say person, but yeah. you know. <laughs> What do we call it? We call them digital twins. Digital twin. Yeah. Okay, so I've got my digital twin and my digital twin is learning about me day in, day out by what I do, in, monitoring my conversations. Ideally, ideally, yeah? yes, yeah. Monitoring. And then um, new project comes in and it says, what, Ruth, I think you're quite suitable for this project. Would you like to join? I'm painting what? a picture of the future at the moment. You know, these are obviously things that we're building now for, for clients. But yes, either it can this is kind of future make technology. recommendations or you know, planners can, yeah. can ask those twins, you know, will they work well in teams? Hmm. Um, we can also validate the answers and say, actually, that looks a bit fishy. Let's go and ask the peers whether that that answer is, is correct or not. It's an augmented, I guess we're going to hear the word co-pilot a lot <laughs> over over the yeah. next five years, assistant, co-pilot, AI assistant, yeah. whatever. But these are, are technologies that augment you. Hmm. Looking at organizational structure, hmm. um, we talked about this a little bit before, some of the most progressive research I read, which probably lends to your way of thinking, is that that we push power out to the edge or all levels of employee and not in a hierarchical way. Yep. In um, a book called Reinventing Organizations by Francois Lelou, um, I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah, book. of course. Yeah. Yep. So he, he, he tracks organizational development um, through... Just briefly, red organizations very hierarchical, like wartime. Um, I think it's is it orange where there it's more like um, factory based, bit no, no. more employee power, but very little power essentially. Until. And then yeah, and then amber orange, mm-hmm. like nineties tech company, bit more again yeah. into a teal organization, yeah. um, which is a very empowered workforce, and then onto green, which is which is. Um, on a good side, very community-led, could be a bit too organisation by committee if it went too far. But he focuses on tier organisations because they seem to develop the most human happiness. Yep. And he pulls out the best traits, behaviours, guidelines that have how these companies are being run across the world or through all sizes. And they have commonalities in them, like sizes of teams, where things come from. Like... Has that informed your approach, or is that? Yeah, you... yeah, I mean, I, I think that before I read the book, it was blindingly obvious to me that you need to have the best, most diverse group of people to be able to make the decision, and and you know that that as I say applies to any decision in a, in, a, in a, whether it be strategy, I, you know, because I'm the CEO and I have expertise around forming our three, four, five year strategy. It doesn't make me any better or should be more powerful than somebody that's making decision about what code to write and test cases. They are a better place to make that decision. I am better place to make my decision. And so in Satalia, everything, every project, we operate as projects. And uh, the, the, the projects are the atoms of the of the of the company, 
And um, we just need to make sure that we have the right group of people in that project making the decision. And uh, the there are some nuances and complexities around, um, I guess, projects that are delivering stuff or projects that are coordinating other projects. You might argue they're programs um, or projects that are now also coordinating programs, which you might argue a portfolio. So th there are mappings here to frameworks like PPM and others, but we try to make sure that, that those hierarchies and relationships are not fixed, but are, are fluid. Um, so I might have one foot in a project that's delivering stuff and another foot in a project that's doing program stuff and another foot in a project that's doing portfolio You've kind got of three stuff. Feet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Especially with your twin. Exactly, You've exactly. Got... And yeah. uh, or a, a toe, a toe, a toe. A toe. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and 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 now the question then is, how does that inform who I am and my role and whatnot? I guess in a more traditional company, you'd have a project manager, portfolio manager, right. program. You'd have manager. an identity that's quite yeah, yeah, stable, and and, that, and that's where you are in that level of the hierarchy and oversight. In Satalia, we we can kind of decentralize that that model. And now you can be a bit of lots of different things, and we've also we've also separated out three types of role. I guess in in a, in a more traditional organisation, you would start out as being somebody that does something. Let's say software development or creating content, and the career trajectory is for you to then oversee a team of people that does that, and then mm. oversee a department, and then become a CEO. That would be the the career trajectory is the number of people that you oversee. Now, obviously, more progressive companies have realized that that doesn't work for some people. Some people just want to maintain and become really good at what they want. Mm. They want to be the best software developer in the year, in, in the world. And, and so you have now two tracks. One is your technical track, and the other one is a managerial track. I actually think there are three. So if you've got your your kind of delivering stuff track like your software developers your designers etc you've got the people that enable those people to deliver stuff like sales and marketing and hr and again in in most organizations the impulse is that if you want to progress in your career as one of those kind of operational people you need to oversee more on people. So you start as, as a junior HR person, eventually a departmental HR, and eventually a, C, a, you know, a chief HR officer. And again, I think that's broken. I think that you could be the best social media marketer in the world, and you don't have to become a CMO to progress in your career. You could start out as being a junior social media marketer, and then you could push the boundaries. You could have pioneered that domain, not have necessarily have oversee more people, but but genuinely push the boundaries, and and that would that would have demonstrated your career trajectory. And I think the third. So then the question is, what where does that leave manage, managerial or coordination? And so we have this this third track, which is. Oh, organizing and orchestrating other people and and again traditionally you would say okay you know level one is somebody that's doing project management a level two is program management a level three is portfolio management and eventually you get to a level you know the top level and that's uh, being the executive management and i again i think that's broken i think that actually you could be a level one ceo 
or you could be a level seven CEO, a level ten CEO, uh, and you, you what we, you find in most of these kind of career development frameworks is that the top of the ladder is somebody that sits on the board, and 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 I think that that is 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 not the right structure. So um, we would by having these kind of three pillars. Um, we can allow people to, to dip their toe across the three pillars at different levels and develop their careers in much more flexible ways. I guess I'm, what I'm wondering, going back to like dignity, which feels like a core returning point, when you're thinking about rolling some of this out in your own company, how do you communicate and develop this stuff collaboratively? Because it would feel like, for me, I'd feel like quite frightened if something someone brought in the twin thing and I had no idea what it was monitoring me with what's the structure to, to or, or even just a few principles about how you develop technology HR technology well, it's not HR but it's something like that isn't it it's it's skills knowledge you've probably got a good word for I think it. Adam I'll think of a word but it's uh, I think the answer to your question is poorly <laughs> and the reason why it's I think I think most organizations, if you ask the employees, one of the biggest challenges they say exist is communication. They'll complain that you know leadership isn't communicating to them, they're not hearing them, all this kind of stuff. And leadership will say, Well, what are you talking about? You know, I've got I've got newsletters that I send out, we do town halls, we do all hands, you've got managers that you can talk to, like you've got multiple channels where we've we've communicated this stuff. And the, the reason why I think that communication is still a massive issue in companies, including, you know, Satalia, we haven't cracked it, is because it's not a communication problem, it's a dialogue problem. And, uh, and the problem with dialogue is that it is, it is complicated. It's, it, it's significantly more effort. You end up, you know, talking about surfacing issues that you don't really want to surface. Um, and and it's a very complicated space to navigate. And so, but you know, I'm ultimately an an advocate of how do we have a dialogue instead of just sodcasting and communicating. Yeah, because it's one thing, isn't it, to get a newsletter about something that's coming out. But if you don't feel listened to and you don't feel like anyone's actually, yeah, you can't contribute to this thing, yeah. then you're going to feel like free. That's pretty poor communication. Yeah, I think I think that's well, I guess being a leader, and I still struggle with that concept. But I think. The frustrating thing for me is that we do, and I think I do listen, but because I have to make decisions in in a much wider concept and um, context, then the decisions, if they don't align with what somebody wanted, they think that I haven't listened. But what I've done is I've taken their perspectives into account and multiple other people's perspective that they haven't had access to, and and I've had to make a call and I could go and have a dialogue with that person and say you know there's 14 other people I've spoken to this is what they've said this is the complexity you need to take into account but that's actually my day job my day job is understanding all of those moving parts making decisions and and I think that um, and that's where trust is important and you know if you've got people that trust you in your capability on decision making in the same way that I trust them to develop code that is you know doesn't have loads of bugs then that that mitigates some of those those issues so in theory trust should remove some of the need to have dialogue but I certainly haven't got that balance right but I'm quite keen to crack it <laughs> I mean I don't know whether huh, would trust remove might remove some dialogue but dialogue feels like almost like an 
a necessary like you might need a lot of dialogue to get trust to a certain level and then you can be less dialogue but 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 it feels like some level of dialogue is going to maintain trust otherwise we're not connecting i'm not saying that we you know we we, we, remo- we remove all dialogue i think that there's a balance um because it's time consuming right dialogue is it is it's yeah, like it, it takes the longest it is out of everything and and, and sometimes you you can't you I, I, if I sat down to a software engineer that's been doing it for 20 years and said, why is it that you've architected your code in that way? Explain it to me. Like, it's not fair for me to ask that question. So for me to be able to justify, in some cases, some of my decisions, it's not, it's not like I'm doing myself an injustice and my own expertise. Um, but there's this expectation that leaders have to explain themselves. And um, and maybe that you know, maybe they should. And you know maybe... But but I, I think that it's difficult, and it's also it is, diff- difficult yeah. because you you have access to information that you're not always allowed to share. And I share that yeah. that is a challenge. But you are in a place of scrutiny, and I, I do think rightly so because yeah. you've got this responsibility. Um, but that that is a my software developers have a responsibility to develop code that is bug free because you know if they make a, a decision about a piece of code that ends up meaning that one of our clients website goes down for uh, an hour that's like an existential threat to my company mm. it's probably they're making decisions that actually probably have a more existential threat than I do I'm I thinking guess this is it. like kind of it's so <laughs> complex isn't it because it's like role model like and this is a whole topic that we don't have time to yeah. <laughs> go to, but, yeah, yeah. but yeah what what level of scrutiny should leaders be under Indeed. I think is, is the question and, isn't it and there's, like, a, and, there's another um, or how and, and also how like because you're very open yeah. so is the, and your systems make a lot of information available so it could no doubt if a, if a leader can be like this is why I've made the decision and this is the information all there because I've been documenting it as I've gone along. You can see the thinking, you can see the yep. collaborative process that has got yeah, us yeah. here, which means that even though you had that weird opinion, which is very interesting, but yep. it, at the end of the day, we can get there. I've seen you've been through a process of integrity to come to. Yeah, so but like, let me uh, let me kind of try and give you some sort of, sort of counter examples. And this is something I've been struggling with for a long time, obviously. So imagine if you know we had a group of people that were learning how to play chess and I brought them into a room and asked them to observe a number of chess games that were going on and to identify the grandmaster out of this group the, 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 they're not going to be able to identify the grandmaster because all they see are incremental moves they can't they can't think and it would only take a grandmaster to be able to spot the grandmaster right. yeah. and and so the, the problem that I have is that people think that they can they can make that decision. And let me give you a separate example. If, if I said to people in my company, um, design a logo for our, our company, uh, that's the first test. The second test is come up with a, um, a fair pay allocation structure. Uh, um, create some pseudo code for the traveling salesman problem or write some Python for a cross matrix, multipl- um, cross matrix um, correlation. Anybody that doesn't have any expertise in the last two or like what are you talking about I don't know how to do code I don't know how to like you're talking a different language everybody will have a go at doing a logo <laughs> everybody will probably have a go at doing doing a, a fair allocation of pay and my argument is that they are not qualified mm. to do well, that I mean, we can all be prime minister can't we you know, we're, exactly, all like, exactly. we're all in the pub going my, my, yeah. like if I ran this country is you know, a, is a, yeah. you know you're, you're, in some respect you're doing you know, somebody a disservice who's been studying that field that domain design in this case for 20 years and if you think you can do it in 
without having expertise. It's and and, and that that's the, the challenge sometimes is that people don't appreciate the complexity and the designer might never be able to explain to them why the design should be like that because mm. it would be trying to take them on a 20-year journey. Mm. It feels like taking people on a journey is what a good leader should do. So communicating to the right level so that people come with, you know, it's, it's just it, some it, fascinating stuff you're thinking of doing it, and you need people on board, right? In, in some cases, yeah. And again, I would controversially argue in some cases they should trust me in the same way that I trust them to develop logos and to write code. And I don't, they don't have to take me on a journey. They don't have to take me yeah, on a journey. you're their employer. Like, you, they've come to that, you with a, some kind of psychological contract. That's where, well, I'm, but I'm, I don't own Satalia anymore. And, uh, yes. and, and, but the, and the many, you know, many of the leaders, people are in leadership positions. They don't have any ownership of the com- company. But yet at the same time, they're asked to justify their decisions and explain. And somehow they're, they're treated differently. And I, and, and I want to dispel that. I, I'm no special mm. than, than anybody else. And, and, and actually, I think I should not be asked to do things outside of what I would ask other people. And again, that might sound a bit controversial. <laughs> and maybe I'm missing something here. But, um, but yeah, that's where I am. Mm, this is very interesting discussion about w- what is leadership yeah. and what is leadership in an environment of high autonomy, trust. Like. Um, and by the way, I think that, you know, there's, there's a difference between leadership and decision making, inspiring other people and giving them confidence in, in, in what, what you're doing and a vision to align themselves with. And then I don't have to explain why you know, generative AI and digital twins are going to be important over the next three years, but but people trust my expertise and, 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 and judgment. So that's that's what, what I'm 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 good at. And uh, and so and so leadership doesn't necessarily mean explaining yourself. It it, it might just mean being able to inspire people and, and unorchestrate them. Huge I mean yeah, a couple of years for you. Got been on this journey with WB. How how are you? Do you it's, how are you looking? I'm the well-being uh, police. So <laughs> how are you looking after it, it, yourself? It's been it's been it's been amazing actually, and um, it's been one of the best decisions of my life. And it's changed, you know. The, I've learned a huge amount um, in terms of my own well-being. I say I'm working harder now than I've, I've ever worked. And the first thing that I did after the acquisition. I obviously made a chunk of money, but the first thing I did was, how do I sort my health out? Because <laughs> I've neglected my health for the past 20 years. And um, I'm just telling you beforehand, I opened a DNA app and and it popped up saying that, that I had a cousin in LA and I've never known my father. And and, it, and, and straight after acquisition, I, I found out who my father was and through opening a DNA app and, and trying to understand you know what my health issues are and things like that. But that's a whole different conversation. Um, but I, I think it, it kind of it ebbs and flows. Um, I'm very tired at the moment and my cognitive load has quadrupled because of AI over the past year trying to figure out how do we differentiate ourselves how do we navigate this space um, in this rapidly changing world and when I'm tired I eat more and when I eat more I feel sloppy and so I need to I need to get myself um, in, in, in better shape but I'm sure that will come is it, I mean, we all go and get in those cycles, can't yeah. we? Like tired, so we we sugar, yeah. and and then we're in this cycle of like caffeine, sugar, yeah. um, slump, that, that and repeat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for sharing and being so sort of kind of giving us a window into your brain and how all this stuff is developing. It's a real pleasure. I'm looking forward to the next one. Thank you, Daniel, for giving us an insight into your view of the future. 
And I feel like Daniel has been ahead of the game with AI for many years. He's been talking about this stuff for decades. However, I do wonder if we opened up more questions than we answered. I will drop some of his talks in the show notes so you can explore further. He's certainly interested in painting a positive picture of AI, which I think has got to be a healthy thing that we need in the conversation too. Well, you've been listening to the Conscious Leaders podcast and I'm Ruth Franker. I want to facilitate honest conversations with great people leaders so you can learn from their highs and lows and also take away sustainable practices and behaviours you can implement straight away. For free practical advice on how to build a calm, collaborative and productive workplace, as well as info on my number one best-selling book, Next Level Leadership, visit consciousleaders.org.uk.